Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Welcome to The Lundown, a podcast analysing breaking news in architecture, housing and planning produced by Open City, which is a charity dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. From now on, by signing up as an Open City friend from £5 a month, you can get early ad-free access to The Lundown and free tickets to live recordings throughout the year. Plus, you get all the other benefits of being an Open City friend too, including access to an exclusive programme of year-round in-person events. Also, by donating, you're supporting independent journalism, keeping the London free and accessible for others, and directly helping Open City's wider educational work, particularly with children and young people from underrepresented communities. To sign up as an Open City friend and get early ad-free access to the London, click the link in the show notes or visit opencity.org.uk slash friends. Thank you. On with the show. Crash Course, the housing crisis now has its own podcast. House builders warn construction of new homes is about to collapse. A high profile East London estate regeneration is rejected. And the shocking treatment of a delivery rider by one luxury tower living couple. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Michael Walker. Michael is host of Novara Media's Tisky Sour and the brand new podcast Crash Course. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me. I do. I need to issue a a correction. We were Tisky Sour for about five years since two weeks ago. Uh, we changed it to Navarro Live. The UK housing crisis is now so big, it has its own podcast. Crash Course with our guest Michael Walker is a brand new series investigating how our broken housing rental system is severely failing tenants. Regular London listeners will know that we spend a lot of time discussing this scale of the crisis facing private housing renters and those aspiring to access secure public housing in the capital. So it will be no surprise to hear the London team are big fans of this new programme. The show, which launched late last year, features conversations with tenants on the front line of Britain's rental crisis, experts who share key, key insights into what we can do to fix it, and even private landlords who defend their position in this unbalanced system. Episodes so far have covered some elemental questions raised in the housing debate. 
From why are rents so high, to how we let Grenfell happen, and even are all landlords bastards. Crash Course shines a light on key but often overlooked issues facing so many Londoners today, and is essential listening for anyone interested in the political context of architecture and housing provision in the UK. So Michael, Crash Course is your new podcast promising to provide in-depth and accessible primers on the issues and themes which are crucial to understanding the increasingly iniquitous world we live in. Why did you decide the housing rental crisis was the most worthy and pressing subject for this very first series? Yeah, I suppose there's maybe a, uh, a, a a deep answer and a more shallow one. So I suppose the deeper one is I think landlordism and the idea that you have to pay so much of your wage to um, someone who hasn't really done anything other than be lucky enough to purchase an asset is is one of the more obvious injustices of, of society today in that it, I think it sort of harks back to feudalism as opposed to the injustices we sort of normally think of as the ones existing capitalism. Now, there, there, there is no claim that a landlord has to have been an innovator. They, they can't say, I got this because I was particularly um, intelligent or risk-taking person. So it, it does just seem like there's a transfer of, of wealth from workers to people who don't work. And people seem to kind of agree um, when you talk about that, that that does seem a little bit unfair. The shallow reason is probably that it's, you know, one of the societal injustices that affects me um, more than many of the other ones. But I get very frustrated having to pay my my landlord 40% of my income every month. Uh, I suppose this summer also we got a 15% rent rise um, and we were thinking of challenging the landlord about it um, then decided because we have so few rights and we wanted to stay there, we wouldn't. And so I thought in my head, well, we'll suck up the 15% pay rise, but I'll start a podcast putting pressure on landlords. And that was how I uh, squared um, that circle for myself. Yeah, it certainly seems like quite a generational issue. Because if you think, probably even on our listeners, there are some people who, for them, housing isn't an issue. There there is no crisis for them personally. They're aware of it affecting other people. Um, Potentially they're a homeowner, potentially... They were at one point a sort of young professional, whatever, in the 70s or 80s. Um, uh, and they've ended up owning a home that's, that's worth loads of cash in London. And what's interesting is that like, this is a very generational issue, but it's also something which, like in your own podcast, you come at it from the, the plight of people in private rent, right? I was on Twitter and I saw like the chief of an urbanism think tank and they posted a blog about all their staff and they were all discussing the struggle of getting private rents and like the kind of hoops they have to jump through with a, a landlord estate agent and all this kind of dire situation. But it's interesting that people in this this generation isn't talking about social housing or public housing as though it's something they have a right to. Why is that? Like, why, why do so many people in this appalling situation not kind of like take up arms and put real political pressure or, or by signing up for council housing or housing cooperatives or housing associations in the area? These options exist. Yeah, it's int- I haven't really thought that much about the signing up for council housing. I mean, I, I think in the podcast, I do sort of we do talk a lot about council housing and sort of push council housing as a solution. I suppose there's there potentially two reasons why the people, and this I, I suppose this this is why you know potentially the focus on on landlordism in general requires some self reflection because there are many injustices in the world that don't affect me that much, and I talk particularly passionately about renting because that does. Um, so you know, I'm obviously from a relatively middle class background and potentially that's why you're hearing about this in the media so much because a bunch of people who do actually have voices in the media are being affected by the private rental market um yeah i, w- I would i'd push back a bit to say that I, I think lots of people feel very passionate about the need for more social housing but the, i think people assume that it's not going to be available to them because it's so scarce right i think potentially people also have a little bit of a you know, if if you know something is so scarce and you know there are so many incredibly vulnerable people who are like locked out of it 
mm. the idea that you should butt in and get that council home if you, you know, don't feel that you absolutely need it, uh, I think probably comes in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can totally see that. And I've certainly witnessed that. But it, it does rather feel like you're kind of falling into like sort of idea of like this deserving and undeserving poor. Uh, almost like a kind of workhouse Victorian moralism of like support is only needed for some people. Whereas really if support was universal, uh, it would take out the whole division. You know? Oh, 100%. Like if society is divided between homeowners and people who don't own homes and then within the don't own homes, it's also divided between those people who are like think that they don't need help because of culture or pride. And then, oh yeah, those people need help. It seems like, you know, you're, well, fragment, what, what, you're fragmenting yeah, yeah, yeah. what could be a great, a, a powerful... Uh, force. Well, I think pro you're probably not doing that by not putting yourself on the housing register, where you're probably not going to get home anyway, um, if you don't tick certain boxes. But I mean, in terms of looking for the kind of housing system we want, the one I always point to is Vienna. So Vienna, you've got 60% of people live in social housing. Um, you have very middle class people, working class people, whole cross section of society lives in those homes. And because there is sort of a powerful group of people with a, a stake in social housing. You have incredibly high quality social housing. And so I was speaking to one of my guests in Vienna, who was, um, I thought it was an interesting comparison, sort of talking about how the new social housing getting built in Vienna has, you know, it, it can be quite standard for there to be a swimming pool on the roof. Although actually that's not just the new ones, even the ones built in the 20s might have had a swimming pool in the roof. And when we think of swimming pools and roofs in London, we think of the sky pool and sort of the horrors of gentrification. But in Vienna, that's just good social housing. So I think obviously this is, the, the system we want is 60% of the population living in social housing. Whether or not that should be translated as the demand, I want to live in social housing in London right now, even though I know there's a dire shortage, is, is somewhat different. It seems both sides of the political spectrum acknowledge the housing crisis and issues of a spiralling rental market. Yet the position of housing minister seems to be a bit of a joke. There have been 11 different housing ministers in as many years. Few of them have lasted more than a year, with several lasting just months. Uh, the position now has also been rolled into the levelling up department as well, uh, and it comes as little surprise that while a lot has been promised, very little has actually happened. Uh, so, Michael, uh, why is nothing being done, uh, or is that the idea all along? I don't know if that's the idea all along, potentially. I mean, there are a lot of people with a vested interest in not solving the housing crisis. And I suppose, I mean, we've had the Tories in power for a long time, and I, I mean, New Labour weren't amazing at this either, but the, the Tories coalition and actually the swing voters that both parties are sort of appealing to aren't really in housing need you know so they're not necessarily incredibly wealthy so the, the, these, these red wall seats we talk about all the time um these aren't necessarily the most privileged people in society but they're disproportionately homeowners and if you're a homeowner the fact that we have a housing crisis is actually quite useful because it means that the, the value of your asset goes up um so the the political momentum to solve the housing crisis is not huge because there's an enormous blocking coalition, which is about 60 to 70% of the population. I mean, maybe that's changing as people worry that their kids can't buy a house and they see that their kids are paying so much money on, on, on rent. Um, potentially people having to support their kids or their kids not moving out of their home until their late 20s and people might find that a little bit frustrating. So you, you can see how uh, there might be um, chinks in that blocking coalition, but it's also... I suppose no surprise that this hasn't been a priority for successive governments. But certainly it is astonishing sometimes, you know, we're a media review show and like, you know, when, whenever a housing announcement is made and, you know, if you've been following this for the decade, past decade or more, like it's all the same stuff, right? So it's like you hear something about you know, designing homes that are contextual to the local area or whatever. And um, yeah, it's, it kind of begs that question is that why is it possible to just keep on sort of promising something but not delivering it. So it's like there's one sector of society that want to hear that something's being done. There's another 
big chunk of society that wants to see that nothing is being done. But it seems like w- one side gets the action, i.e. nothing being done, and the other side just gets words. Yeah, how, how is that sustainable? Like, how is it just because, is, it, is that politics or is that, uh, are people just too distracted or? I mean, I think it's, well, I suppose it's principally politics and the fact that the majority coalition sort of are, are basically in line with powerful economic interests, right, in, in this case. So, so if you've, the, the really politically contentious issues when it comes to house buildings tend to be those that affect existing homeowners. So what are they going to look like? Um, where exactly are they going to be? Our local residents going to be able to block them. That, that's the thing that sort of threatens to bring down Tory governments or lose by election mm-hmm. or lose by elections. Sorry. Um, so conservatives are, are very worried about that. And it, it just so happens that financial interests also don't really mind a housing shortage because it means that asset prices go up. So you, you do have a bit of a, a coalition of interest there. And, you know, you can say that the developers do want to be able to build more buildings, but at the same time, they're making enough profit as it is. It's not particularly urgent. This is only urgent for people who are relatively disenfranchised politically and economically. Although, as I say, that's potentially somewhat changing. Now you've got more people who are, you know, work at major newspapers who are in their 30s who previously would have been able to to buy a house and now can't. The problems you highlight in Crash Course affect such a large proportion of people living in London, particularly younger people, and also the rest of the country. Uh, yet, despite so many people suffering under this failed system, uh, most people do feel hopeless when it comes to the housing crisis itself. Um, concerningly, obviously, there's also a big chunk of society who benefit, or at least think they benefit, from the worsening situation. Um, at what point does the need for radical change just become so great that it's unstoppable? I mean, something has to happen. And then also, what does that look like in your mind? How do you think it could play out uh, when the inevitable finally occurs? Yeah, again, I, I think it's politics, right? So, I mean, in London, it's interesting. Potentially, if you had more devolved powers, we would have a bit more of a radical housing policy because I think renters are a you know a higher proportion of urban inner cities than they are in the rest of the country. And it's not no, no no coincidence that you've seen Sadiq Khan and Andy Burnham call for rent controls when, say, Keir Starmer hasn't. Um, because you have these people who are you know, in these cities where renters are a more important voting block than they are in the country as a whole. Um, in terms of will there be a radical shift? I mean, you, you've got this, this political interest on the Tory right where they want more homes built because they want more homeowners. And they think that to sort of keep their coalition going, you need about 70% of the population being homeowners. The genius of Thatcher's right to buy was that it created more people who had an interest in the kind of things that Tories care about. And then you've got Labour who, uh, you know, I, I think probably in this government or the next, I know it's been postponed for a very long time, but something akin to the Renters Reform Bill, which gives people some sort of security, will probably be, be, be into, introduced because I think there is a recognition that you can't have this many people in their 30s and 40s, raising families in, in, in private rental homes and not being able to plan three months in advance. So so I, I feel like that change probably will come because it's kind of low-hanging fruit. It doesn't really um, challenge the interests of homeowners, who I do think are the real power base here. I actually changed mm. my position a little bit while I was doing the podcast because I used to think that it was landlords who held all the power. Mm. And, and obviously they hold all the power in the relationship they have with their tenants. My landlord has so much power over me. But politically, I think it is homeowners more than landowners, more than landlords, sorry, mm-hmm. um, who, who who wield the real like veto. Um, okay, so one of the most shocking and insightful episodes was when you interviewed Peter Apps, a journalist who covered the Grenfell fire and inquiry in depth. Um, the podcast looked at the litany of government and private sector failings stemming from a cross-party ideology uh, which has placed profit above safety for decades. So why is this deregulating ideology still so prevalent right now, even after everything we know about Grenville and how everything seems to 
track back to that thing. Yeah, I mean, it is really shocking. It's one of those moments where you thought, oh, that everything will change after this. And it, it didn't particularly. I mean, you know, the particular form of cladding that was on the side of Grenfell, I mean, does that particular form of cladding is banned. But you, you still got house builders sort of pushing to to have a a, 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 a deregulated system. I mean, why is it? I suppose you can say the developers themselves have a fair amount of political power. They donate to political parties, et cetera, et cetera. They do have a, a big role in the political system. I mean, at the same time, I think it probably is because no one is willing to sort of really bring the state in to pick up the slack and say, let's build beautiful state-owned housing because you, the government are subject to two different constraints. So so one is to say, we've got a housing crisis. We want more houses built. And um, the developers say, we can only build you more houses if you make it cheap to build them and because the land is so expensive and so much of the the cost goes into the land that we've got to try and build a a cheap um, edifice on on top of that land and so the government say well given that it's only the developers who can build this because the state doesn't have the capacity or we don't want the state to to develop the capacity we're going to have to keep regulations low so i mean i i think it's because land costs so much you're relying on developers to do this building and therefore you have to cut costs elsewhere to to get it done which is a very irrational way of of running a housing system. In another episode, you weigh up the economics of renting and the financial reforms of Margaret Thatcher against the relative role of gentrification in creating this crisis. What were your conclusions? Should young professionals renting in Hackney, for example, feel guilty about pushing up rental prices in East London? Could moving to a less fashionable borough make any kind of dent on the situation? I mean, it wouldn't make a dent on the situation because, you, you know, no individual is going to have, a, uh, a, I think, any impact on, on rental prices in Hackney. I mean, I do think that gentrification, I mean, I suppose put it this way. I think if you were a you know, long-standing working class resident of Hackney, you have kind of every right to feel a little bit disgruntled that a bunch of people from a more privileged class background than you moved to Hackney and undeniably did increase rents. You know, I, I do think a lot of, with rents, Probably more than house prices, it is a lot to do with supply and demand because when you get house prices, it's a lot to do with the mortgage markets and interest rates and financial regulation. But with rents, I think the reason rents are so high in Hackney is because there are a lot of people that want to live there and there aren't that many houses for them to rent. So so I do think that in the private market, at least, there will be middle class people who have displaced working class people who lived in Hackney for a long time. So that that is a reality. At the same time, I think if our politics is sort of limited to these zero-sum games of, oh, you should deny yourself the opportunity to live in Hackney so that, well, it, it won't be that another working class family moves into your flat. It will be that another group of people from a similar class background as yourself move into that flat anyway. But if you were to limit yourself to that politics, it seems a little bit depressing. I mean, I think what we should be talking about is building enough housing in Hackney of all different types of tenure that you can have people move there without it becoming um, extortionately expensive for long-standing residents. I mean, in a way as well, it's, it's partly about choices and preferences. It's also just how you know economic changes since the 1980s. The, the economy changed to a service one. People want to live in inner cities because you've got these agglomeration effects of all living close to each other. Um, so, it, so it was inevitable. And I mean, the state, the government, no one really thought, okay, we're going to have millions of people who now want to live in zone two. What do we do about it? Um, they just sort of let the market do its thing. And obviously, what did that do? It pushed out poor people. A lot of the stories you covered in the series, they were hard-hitting, relatable to many, uh, but painted a pretty damning picture of the situation we're in. Hopefully no one's too depressing uh, listening to what we're saying. 
Uh, were there any positives you took away from making this series? Um, I mean, certainly I like I get quite excited when people talk about a housing price crash, although I'm told by various people that won't make everything better. Um, anything that cheered your spirits? So, I mean, I suppose in, the, in the, the, the way I've often framed it in the podcast is the good news is there is an alternative, which is Vienna or, I mean, I also talked, you know, to a Georgist and a Yimby. Um, so Georgists are the people who want a land value tax and the Yimbies are the people who just want to build more housing by any means necessary. I mean, they tend to be on the right and it's building it via deregulation. I suppose I haven't set out a, a roadmap to get to Vienna. Uh, I'll potentially, I do have a couple more episodes, so maybe I'll squeeze that one in there. What's to be positive about it beyond that there is theoretically an alternative? I suppose it is that I think we probably are reaching a bit of a tipping point where there are enough people in the private rental sector that they are beginning to have a political voice um, and therefore they're you know the coalition in favor of building more homes building more homes of different tenures having some kind of regulation of the market so that you don't have to worry about your rent getting hiked by 15 percent in three months time or being kicked out of your house in three months time i think some of those changes probably will come in as i say the homeowning lobby is still incredibly powerful and the debate does seem to still be stuck in the idea of the only people who can build homes are developers so we have to be incredibly soft on developers to get these buildings constructed which i think is quite a sad reality which sort of speaks of a lack of imagination of the political class i mean people are talking about housing and renting much more than they did a few years ago and, and that's partly because rents have gone up but i think it's more to do with who is now stuck in the rental market which is some people with a bit more political influence than in the past now do have a stake in sorting this out although i mean the depressing analysis is that what you know the right want what the yimbies want is for a tiny sliver of that group of, so the most privileged private renters to be able to basically afford a house and then we'll go back to normal whereby 30 percent of the population are completely ignored and the 65 percent of homeowners is now shored up to 70 percent, so everyone can pretend there isn't a problem anymore so, Michael, what next for Crash Course? The first series is all about the housing crisis. Uh, what other topics are on your mind? Uh, are you going to return to architecture and built environment type stuff? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about it. I, I think I probably will return to it. I mean, the, the housing crisis does, you know, rile a lot of people up, myself included. I think what I'm planning on doing next, I want to make a podcast on whether or not COVID changed the world. And mm. so it's partly based on uh, a sort of really clear memory I have. Of, I think when the first lockdown had just been announced. So we covered it, you know, as journalists on, on, on Navarra Media. But I remember sort of like personally, like being on the estate I lived on at the time in Hackney and going to Sainsbury's at like half 10 p.m. Oh, stock up on some replies. Off to my own heart. I yeah. love that half 10 Sainsbury's trip. <laughs> and just thinking, you know, the estate, everything being completely empty, just thinking, this is our Second World War. This changes everything. And, you know, obviously, you know, that's lots of people died in the First World, Second World War and lots of people died during the COVID crisis. So this is incredibly, you know, this is going to be incredibly distressing for lots of people. Lots of people are going to die. It can be awful. But at the same time, I had this sort of hope that maybe afterwards we'll have learned some lessons as a society. We'll, we'll have learned that sorry, we, we probably should take um, the warnings of scientists seriously. I thought maybe mm -hmm. that would have some impact on how we sort of approach climate change. I thought, you know, in the newspapers, we're all talking about, and the TV, we're all talking about how important shelf stackers are. And we've all suddenly realised that it's essential workers. Or I suppose this new concept came of essential workers. People hadn't been talking about essential workers before that. Mm. So society had realised that all of these workers, which were previously um, considered unimportant and were, were, were low paid, were now essential. Mm. Um, and I thought maybe this is going to create some new social contract where we all sort of want something a bit more like the post-war consensus. Um, and we and yeah we take climate change seriously. Three years later, it kind of feels like nothing's changed, and if anything did, it was for the worse. Um, so that's going to be 
the starting point. I'm hoping that my mind will be changed. The supply of new houses in England is forecast to plummet to its lowest level since World War II, according to a shocking new report by the Home Builders Federation, the HBF, a trade body which represents house builders. Uh, the study, covered in The Guardian, warns that changes to planning policy and what developers are describing as a, quote, overly strict enforcement of environmental regulations, end quote, will result in the number of new homes being completed falling below 120,000 per year, a figure which is less than half of the government's 300,000 target. For some context, in England, we're already 1.4 million homes short of what we need, and that 300,000 homes target has been missed for decades. Uh, the chairman of HBF, that's Stuart Baisley, said, quote, the increasingly anti-development and anti-business policy environment poses a real threat to house building and is inevitably at the forefront of minds when investment decisions are being made, end quote. He went on, as we try to tackle the housing crisis during a recession with tighter mortgage availability and no government scheme to assist buyers uh, to purchase new build homes for the first time in decades, short-term political decisions to appease backbenchers seriously threaten confidence. Uh, that's end quote. And then the, a spokesperson for the de Department of Leveling Up Housing and Communities, uh, they responded by saying, quote, we do not accept this analysis. We remain committed to delivering 300,000 new homes per year and we are investing £11.5 billion to build the affordable quality homes this country needs. Okay, so Michael, what's this all about? The construction industry seems to be pointing its finger at the government, saying their policies are making house building impossible. Uh, meanwhile, the message from Michael Gove's office seems to be business as usual. Um, can we trust either of them? Uh, is And also, if they're right, is the housing crisis about to get a whole lot worse? Probably can't trust either of them in the housing crisis. Probably about to get a lot more, a lot worse. I would say. <laughs> in yeah. summary, I mean, I suppose what's going on here. So the developers, I suppose, this refers a, a bit back to what I was talking about before, where we have this sort of depressing policy reality, where because um, the state won't properly intervene in the market to get houses built, you have to defer to the developers. Um, and partly, you know, in the developers' defence, is because they have to pay so much money for for land. If you made land much cheaper than it currently is, um, there wouldn't be these sort of similar financial constraints. I mean, I think the elephant in the room with that statement from the House Building Federation is house prices, right? So the big problem we have with leaving all of development to a few small, um, massive house building companies is that they have an interest in holding back land until house prices are high. So obviously, house prices are falling um, this year. I mean, I don't think they're going to fall you know, in the long term, but they're falling now because mortgage rates are, have got more expensive. And therefore, why as a property developer would you want to build out an estate or you know a group of houses now as opposed to in five years time yeah. you want to put those homes on the market when asset prices are up and that means that we're not going to build them over the next few years now that to me seems like a a, a crazy way to run a market if what you want is to increase supply so yeah. if you leave in control of supply the people who will not supply enough to bring down prices prices are never going to come down right yeah, so yeah. so that's the the problem you have there. I mean, I don't know the details of these various environmental regulations. I mean, my my sense would normally be that regulating the the, the development industry is probably a good thing. I mean, we, we've seen the, the 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 result of deregulation in recent years, obviously most dramatically and tragically with Grenfell. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I think if we have a housing market where you only build houses when property right property prices are going up, um, you know, it's a big mistake. Also, seems like it would be a big opportunity. I mean, if if I was the state. If I was the government at this point, I'd say, fine, well, if you're not going to build these houses, that means that presumably it's going to be cheaper to hire builders. Presumably it's going to be um, cheaper to buy the raw materials that you need to make these houses. Um, so we're going to 
enter into the market when these prices are low and build a load of gorgeous social housing. And if you want to re-enter the market in a few years, good for you. Yeah, it's certainly it's certainly interesting in that like at a moment where we know house building is going to go down, you know, for all the reasons you outlined. And then you think people will never to be asked that question, house builders, why are you not building homes? And rather than them saying, yeah, we're not building them because, um, you know, we, we don't want to lose money. We've chosen not to build them. That's why they're not being mm. built. Uh, they say, change, this, change the conversation. Oh, no, I want to talk about regulations. Mm. You know, I, I want to talk about the fact the government isn't giving us subsidies mm. anymore. I mean, in, in a big picture way, that is one of the ways that Grenfell did happen, which is that you had a bunch of house builders say, if you introduce health and safety regulations, these houses aren't going to get built. So then you, you have politicians who say, well, we, we kind of need these houses to get built. You know, Peter Apps actually has a really interesting sort of quote from one of the civil servants at the time saying show me the body is the name of his book and basically what that was a reference to is the civil servant saying look there are all these safety concerns but deaths are going down um that was because of lifestyle changes not because of building safety people smoking less and less chip pans but deaths are going down and there's a housing shortage so if deaths are going down and there's a housing shortage it's the housing shortage that's the problem it's developers that build these houses therefore let's give them what they want and so i mean it does seem that we're, we're taking a, a, a similar route now. Whereas, obviously, I think the answer should be if developers can't build safe houses and actually, if, you know, if, if developers can't build to a standard and actually build the houses, then maybe there's something wrong with the system and, and we need to work out a system whereby we can build houses which are safe and environmentally friendly and actually get built. Yeah, I mean, it certainly does seem like that because the report, it, it, you know, it talks about these levies and post-Grenfell fire safety regulations as like something that is making it genuinely unaffordable to build self safe, affordable housing. I mean, is you know, are we just having our legs pulled here? You know, is, is, is that real? Is it actually impossible to, to build stuff like that? Uh, or is it only impossible if you want like a good, whatever, 15% profit margin to give back to your investors' return? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't studied the balance sheets of these, of these companies. Um, but I mean, I suppose the thing is, even if you take off that 15% return that they want, it's still going to be pretty expensive. And I think, I think probably this has as much to do with land as it does to do with developer profits which is that anyone who wants to build um, a big development now be it a council be it a, a private developer the main cost is going to be land and obviously land no one produced it you know it, it's not if you introduce reforms that make land much cheaper economic efficiency is not going to suffer in fact it's only going to go up um, it's not going to disincentivize people from well if it disincentivizes people from owning land like great fantastic so i, I think probably you know, developers' profits frustrate people. I, as I say, I think we should get the the state to to build loads more. I think also we should have a, you know, a system whereby you don't let the the market be dominated by seven firms who all have an interest in holding back land. But yeah, I'd say land prices is probably the biggest issue here. And so I do think that probably anyone trying to develop in Britain right now, it will be more expensive to do than it needs to be. And that's not just because of profit seekers, although that doesn't help. I think it's more to do with with land prices. Yeah, you can sort of see why house builders are angry. You know, they've had their lovely help to buy subsidy taken away from them. You know, they're really put out uh, by finally having to face reality. Um, but the, the HBF, they've also accused Gove of caving to pressure from the backbenchers and the Conservative Party uh, by making amendments to the National Planning Policy Framework uh, to make it easier for local authorities to refuse planning permission, um, something many people believe contributed to that uh, the Conservatives losing the Chesham and Amersham by-election uh, and then going on to abandon uh, the planning reforms. Uh, we covered them a lot on the show. There were these sort of zonal uh, reforms which uh, freaked out a lot of people who were anti-new homes. Now, because uh, you've said a lot about the influence of the construction and house building industry on uh, the government, 
Um, why does NIMBYism also have such a powerful role in, in contemporary politics? And it's not, it's not just, you know, it goes across the parties. You know, we see all, all politicians uh, getting involved in it. Is this what millions of homeowners desperate to protect their asset value looks like? Yeah, no, I do, I do think NIMBYism is a problem. I mean, I think, you know, the YIMBYs, so the yes in my backyards, the people who oppose themselves to the NIMBYs, you know, potentially overstate to some degree the problem, you know, the problem to which essentially local democracy is, is, is the root of the problem. I think that's one of the problems. I think even if you got rid of these NIMBYs, you'd, you'd still have a, a problem whereby you've got uh, a concentration of ownership in, in the development sector and they would do things such as land bank, especially when you've got property land prices, sorry, going up and down and property prices going up and down. So I don't think that the solution to all problem is to defeat the NIMBYs, but I don't think the NIMBYs help. And it does make, it's in your self-interest if you live in a place, why why do you want more people to live there? Mm. I mean, I I personally quite like living in a very densely populated area. That's that's sort of the things I like to do. It helps that there are lots of people around. Yeah. But if you, if you live in a you know, it's a suburban commuter town and you, you like that it's very low density. Why wouldn't you oppose a new development? And so it, yeah, it does yeah. make sense that a planning system where you give that specific locality the, the ability to block housing is probably not the most sensible one to have. Yeah, it does seem odd that like, I mean, obviously, quite rightly, everybody's vote is worth the same. But in a city, spatially, that means certain territories have far less voting power than say, an enormous territory of potential development land, when you have a situation where some kind of bold decision above politics is needed to maybe build the infrastructure, like, I don't know, say something like Milton Keynes, you know, mm. it's probably quite a high-level political decision that is the reason we have that city that nobody would doubt is very successful and important part of our economy. But, um, you know, the democratic system just doesn't really, it, it, it's not really built to, to take account of the fact that, you know, those people will be angry, mm. but then in the long term... You know, it's built a beautiful city. Yeah, I think first past the post doesn't help here because that the swing seats happen to be in those areas which are of low density, where we could do with building a bunch more houses. So they have disproportionate political influence in the inner cities. The people who want more housing, you know, they tend to be safe seats. An estate regeneration scheme in East London, led by the architects Morrison Company and Levitt Bernstein, has been turned down in a shock planning committee ruling, going against planning officers' recommendations. Uh, this was reported by the AJ this week. Planning permission for the second part of the Aberfeldy estate regeneration in Poplar was rejected in a unanimous 8-0 to zero vote by Tower Hamlet's councillors because of concerns over increased traffic and reduced sunlight to neighbouring buildings. Councillors also said they were concerned about the level of affordable housing on the 9.1 hectare site. The level is about 39% in the planning proposal. And also they were concerned about the height of the development outside a designated tall building zone. Officers at the council said these were not valid reasons for rejecting the proposal because the scheme complied with local planning guidelines on both counts. Um, the scheme would see up to 1,582 homes built on the site of an existing estate next to the Blackwall Tunnel. Some 1,135 of the homes would be for market sale, 368 would be for affordable rent, and 79 homes would be for intermediate rent. Uh, the development would replace 330 homes, 250 of which are social rent. Uh, although some councillors objected to this 10-year mix, Officers warned that this may be the highest level of affordable housing achievable for the site. One planning officer pointed out that the proposed level of affordable housing in the application had only been made viable for the developers with a GLA grant, uh, which itself expires in March. The council official added, quote, if the application is refused and a different application comes forward in the future, the chances of it having any more affordable housing are quite slim. 
Okay, so Michael, what's this all about? You know, there's 22,000 households on the housing waiting list in Tower Hamlets. Projects offering 39% affordable housing. Um, the, t- the borough has a affordable housing target of 35 to 50% affordable housing for new uh, individual schemes. Uh, why is Tower Hamlets turning it down in the midst of this housing crisis? Yeah, there's two ways of looking at it, right? So, so the, the 39% affordable housing, you know, that wasn't 39% social housing. So I think the majority of it was affordable rent, which means 80% of market rent, which you know, to most of those people on the Tower Hamlets housing waiting list is still going to be unaffordable. So I, I don't know the details of why this was, was rejected. I suppose sort of the big picture here is when I look at sort of planning decisions like this, I think there, there are two reasons that councils make them. So one is to say, and you know, in, in in the article you quoted from there, these were cited. Oh, the buildings are too tall. Oh, it will increase traffic. Now, for me, there's a housing crisis. We need London to be more dense. I don't care if the building's tall. If you're worried about more traffic, just don't put a car park there, and people will use bikes. <laughs> I, I, I think the idea that a dense city means more traffic is silly. Actually, a dense city should mean, you know, on in the aggregate, less traffic because you've got people living closer to the amenities that they want to use. It's less commuting if you have a more dense city, and so. Taller buildings, more people living in that place in general. Density, I'm I'm into. So if you've got a council rejecting something because it's too dense, I tend to be a bit suspicious of it. If you've got a council who are using their leverage to say 39% affordable housing isn't enough, what we actually want is say 25% social housing, then I would be perfectly fine with that. And I, you know, I've spoken to people in councils who said they have done that before. They've sort of rejected a policy, and because they want the the social housing target to be more ambitious. They've been called, you know, like a NIMBY by YIMBY housing Twitter who just say you're just against development. And then actually the developer comes back with a higher level of social housing and it gets accepted. So if, it, if it's just them using their muscle to say we want more more social housing out of this, great. If it's them saying we don't want tall buildings and we don't want more people in the area, not great. Over in North London, uh, the Enfield Council-led Meridian Water Project is now without a director and the project is currently under review due to financial concerns. This is an article that was also covered in the AJ. Um, Now, it's a 10,000 home project. Uh, It took headlines five years ago when the council uh, rejected the unacceptable terms put forward by developers and said, no, we're going to go it alone. Like, we're going to be the first mega scheme you know, happening, led by a council. We've talked a lot on the show about how the private sector is failing to meet London's housing needs. Does this latest story show that the public sector house building drive is also potentially on the rocks? I suppose one of the things that Batcher's policy of not only right to buy, but also banning councils from reinvesting that money is that you lost a lot of institutional capacity. So, I mean, it used to be one of the great things about Vienna as well. And I suppose London in the 60s and the 50s is that if you were an ambitious planner or an ambitious architect, you would go work for the public sector. My understanding is that isn't necessarily the case now. So it would it wouldn't surprise me if you now have some councils trying to take on huge projects that they haven't done for 30 years and struggling. Now that's obviously not a reason to give up. It's a reason to give councils a bit more money so that they can actually do this do this properly and maybe you know start small and build up to these huge mega developments. But yeah, I think there's probably a lot of institutional knowledge that councils have, have, have lost over the past few decades because they exited that market. And now when they try and re-enter, I can see why problems would emerge. A shocking incident in central London has highlighted the dire conditions of delivery workers and the lack of protection they receive. This is a story covered by LBC. On Thursday night, a delivery rider collapsed in the foyer of a block of luxury flats while delivering food to a couple. Several people rushed to his aid and called an ambulance while his rider app kept pinging him messages demanding he complete the delivery. As soon as a fellow delivery driver signalled the item was dropped off, the phone immediately alerted him to new orders to pick up. 
Um, according to eyewitnesses, the delivery customer collected their food while he lay outside the building's floor before later, later coming back to complain to the incapacitated driver about a missing item, um, reportedly even stepping over him to check his courier bag. You know, that's why he's lying on the floor, being clearly helped by other people. Um, James Farrer, who's the General Secretary of the App Drivers and Couriers Union, uh, was among those who had to persuade security guards at the block of luxury flats uh, to let them take the rider inside out of the cold so that he could lay on a sofa uh, in the lobby to recover. The ambulance took over an hour to arrive. Um, the, the rider remains in hospital in a serious condition, according to his family. Uh, James Fowler, who was there, said, quote, there's a weird juxtaposition where it takes a life-saving service an hour to arrive, and yet we can have fast food delivery and mini cabs in minutes. Something is not working, end quote. Uh, the incident has sparked outrage on social media. It's been echoed by UK Labour Party leader Keir Starmer, who's called for an urgent review into the rights and payer delivery riders. Okay, so Michael, um, story is shocking, not only because of the callousness of the customers and the concierge, but also because it highlights the plight of gig workers, uh, who are clearly being overworked and underpaid. Um, what does this story say about London? I mean, we've had a rapid influx of new luxury developments in recent decades. Um, and then also this precarious gig economy has emerged to service these sort of wealthy lifestyles. Mm. I mean, yeah, it sounds almost sociopathic from the, the couple who are stepping over this person who's just collapsed. I mean, I suppose regardless of this story, I mean, Delivery drivers and Uber Eats drivers should be paid more, right? I mean, one of the reasons, as you say, this has this this industry has flourished is because of inequality, whereby you've got rich people who pay poor people terrible wages to, to deliver them food. I don't think we should ban delivery. I don't think we should ban Uber Eats. I mean, they're not only used by you know the the, the super elite. I think lots of people use Uber Eats and, and delivery so sort of a, a platform to say let's get rid of these industries would probably be a mistake. But I mean, obviously that there should be a minimum, a, a much higher minimum wage for people who are doing these jobs because they're difficult jobs. And people should pay more to get their food delivered if that's what it takes for people to have a decent standard of living and which isn't being provided right now. OK, uh, we are now on to the culture section of the show. Uh, this is where we we profile things, things that are going on in London's cultural space, sometimes with a link to architecture and the built environment. And um, perhaps here's, here's a cultural item which might uh, pique your interest. Uh, an artist who's taken up residence in a skip on a patch of waste ground in Mandela Way, this in Southwark, um, could face enforcement action from the council for failing to obtain planning permission. Uh, so it's like a pop-up art installation in a skip. It's called the Skip House, um, somewhere just off Old Kent Road. It's a £4,000 wooden structure. He's documenting the whole thing on Instagram and TikTok. It's meant to be linked to an, an art gallery. So there's a sort of link, cultural link, but also about, you could say, some kind of commentary on the housing crisis. It's getting an enforcement notice from Southwark Council. Same council that's like banging the drum for building new council housing. Is it a house? It's a skip. It's a, I mean, skip. I wouldn't want to live in it. I mean, I don't think people should be living in things like this. This is not... I'm not sure it's a solution to the housing crisis, but let the man have a skip. <laughs> Are you going to go down the uh, skip gallery? It's not, no, it's not really top of my list. <laughs> it's not top of my list, but um, yeah, all power to the guy. Mike, it's been a great pleasure to feature you on the show this week. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Thanks for the invite. Cool. Where can listeners go to keep up to speed on your output, your socials? Uh, my Twitter is Michael JS Walker. Uh, I was going to say at twitter.com, but that's not how Twitter works. Uh, so that is my handle. Uh, I'm on Navarro Live on Monday, Wednesdays and Fridays. But most importantly for this conversation, uh, you can sign up to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod um, to listen to the entire housing series. And hopefully soon, I'm a series on whether COVID changed the world. We certainly is fully essential listening, well worth subscribing and supporting.
Cheers, Mike. Cheers. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City in association with the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and a ton of other benefits while supporting independent journalism, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring, Merlin Fulcher, Rachel Capel, Ella Jessel and me, Phineas Harper. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.